Samson's equating not getting the wife he wanted with first killing 30 Philistines in Ashkelon, then setting on fire the wheat crop and olive trees, and then slaughtering innumerable Philistines is ridiculous on its face. His pride had been wounded, and he lost a little face. The Philistines had suffered unimaginable losses. The Bible is full of stories that we all know and love. But how well do we know them? The answer might surprise you. The Bible you thought you knew is going to dive deep into the exquisite details of the biblical stories that make them fascinating and transforming. In this week's podcast, we will stick with the Samson saga. If we were less than enthralled with the man's behavior as expressed in last week's podcast, nothing in this week's story will mitigate those feelings. As biblical characters go, Samson is, at best, an acquired taste. The time frame of this episode, which is Judges 15, is at the time of the wheat harvest, and that is subsequent to when Samson had left in a huff from his own wedding. Not only had he done serious damage to 30 innocent Philistines in Ashkelon, he abandoned the woman who he was so keen to marry. Once again, given no choice, the woman was married off to the best man once Samson had departed. Apparently, having cooled off a bit, Samson decided once more to go see the woman. He took a goat with him, presumably as a present. Clearly, he had sex on his mind, for he thought to himself, I will go into my wife in the chamber. That's in verse 1 of chapter 15. That particular Hebrew verb is commonly used to describe sexual intercourse. Of course, this is perplexing. Samson's having erotic thoughts is no surprise, but he seems to think that this woman is his wife. However, when Samson left the woman in the previous episode, there was no indication that they had already tied the knot, so to speak. Thus, she was married off to the best man. Obviously, Samson was under a completely different impression. When Samson arrived, the woman's father tried to explain the situation. He pointed out that the circumstances under which Samson left the wedding celebration made him, that is, the father-in-law, think not only that Samson no longer loved his daughter, but that, in fact, he hated her. For that reason, the father saw no problem in allowing his daughter to marry Samson's friend, who had been best man. That's in verse 2. The father also wanted to make amends, so he offered another daughter to Samson. This daughter, the father suggested, was even prettier than her sister. Samson was not in the least mollified. Without giving any consideration to how he had stormed out of the wedding, he made clear that he viewed the woman's marrying the best man as a betrayal. He blamed this disloyalty not only on one Philistine family, but on Philistines generally. 
for this nefarious action, Samson would make the Philistines pay. Plus, he would have no qualms about what he was about to do. That's in verse 3. To accomplish this dastardly deed, Samson proceeded to capture 300 foxes. That's in verse 4. How he was able to accomplish this spectacular feat is left unexplained. Catching a handful of foxes would have been a daunting task. Getting a hold of 300 foxes defies belief. Perhaps we are to infer that his previous dispatching of a lion without a weapon in his hand indicated special abilities in dealing with wild animals. In any case, once he had the foxes in his clutches, he put them tail to tail, indicating that he somehow managed to tie foxes to one another using their tails. Again, how anyone, no matter how strong or clever, could do anything so fantastic is left unsaid. Evidently, we are supposed to use our imaginations. As though this scene were not absurd enough, Samson then put a torch between the tails of these foxes. All of a sudden, we realize why the narrator told us that this was the time of the wheat harvest. These foxes, already panicked, mad as hell about being corralled, and sporting torches, would be lethal to grain that was about to be harvested. Naturally, Samson saw to it that the foxes were unleashed on the grain fields. For good measure, this burned up not only the current Philistine wheat crop, but also did considerable damage to the olive tree groves, too. That's in verse 5. From Samson's insolent perspective, the Philistines got exactly what they deserved. As you might imagine, the Philistines reacted at once to the damage Samson's torch-bearing foxes had inflicted. Once they discovered that Samson was the culprit, they went straight to the house of his ostensive father-in-law, and ostensive wife. Apparently blaming these two people for inciting Samson, they burned up their house, killing them both. That's in verse 6. This is a supreme irony in that during the wedding, you'll remember, the 30 guests had threatened Samson's bride with just such an outcome if she were not forthcoming with the answer to the riddle they were trying to solve. She gave in to their threat by cajoling Samson for the answer and then telling the guests the answer. That gave her a reprieve, but as it turned out, only for a while. In the end, the angry Philistines, who were reacting to what the foxes had done to their wheat fields and olive tree groves, burned up her and her father. All of this was precipitated by Samson's outrageous behavior. But the incident did not stop with this senseless violence. When Samson saw what had happened to the woman and her father, he swore more vengeance on the Philistine population. That's in verse 7. 
though he promised that this would be the final time he would harm the Philistines, he pulled no punches. He slaughtered the Philistines hip and thigh, a difficult phrase, but indicating that there were considerable casualties. After this latest display of temper, Samson then apparently hid out in the cleft of the rock of Etam. That's in verse 8. God may have wanted to punish the Philistines for their domineering the Israelites, but Samson seems to be wreaking this havoc completely for personal reasons. God is the last thing on his mind. He seems to be enjoying the devastation he is causing to the Philistines. If Samson wanted to prevent the Philistines from harassing Israel, his shenanigans so far did not have that intended effect. The next thing we know, the Philistines had encamped in Judah and raided a town called Lehi. That's in verse 9. When the Israelites asked the Philistines what they were up to, the answer was hardly surprising. In short, this crazy Israelite had to be stopped. That's in verse 10. The men of Judah, some 3,000 of them, decided that they needed to do something to defuse the situation. Apparently knowing that they could not stand toe-to-toe against Philistine military superiority, these men decided they would deal with the source of the trouble, namely Samson. So these men went to Etam, where they found the rock in which Samson was hiding. The exchange is telling. The men from Judah want to know what in the world Samson is thinking. Does he not know that the Philistines have the upper hand right now? Is Samson oblivious that what he is doing is only making the Israelite situation that much more intolerable? Samson's response is juvenile and petulant, just what we would expect. Quote, I am only doing to them what they are doing to me. End of quote. That's verse 21. Samson's equating not getting the wife he wanted with first killing 30 Philistines in Ashkelon, then setting on fire the wheat crop and olive trees, both essential sources of food, and then slaughtering innumerable Philistines is ridiculous on its face. His pride had been wounded, and he lost a little face. The Philistines had suffered unimaginable losses. There was no equivalence whatsoever. Regardless, the 3,000 men, obviously the Israelites were themselves worried about Samson's vaunted strength, tell him that they have no choice but to tie him up and deliver him to the Philistines. That's in verse 12. Contrary to what we might have surmised, Samson does not pitch a fit. Instead of recoiling, he asks only that the men of Judah refrain themselves from harming him. If they agree to this stipulation, he has no problem with letting them bind him with ropes. After swearing to this condition, the 3,000 men of Judah hogtie Samson with brand new ropes and bring him up from the rock in which he had been hiding. That's in verse 13. 
when he was unceremoniously deposited in Lechai, where the Philistines were waiting, they approached him while shouting. Doubtlessly, they were thrilled finally to have a chance to take down a peg or two, the man who had been terrorizing them. That's in verse 14. Unfortunately for the Philistines, though, they had not factored in the possibility that Samson's god might spoil what they had in mind for their nemesis. When Samson got to Lehi, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily on Samson, with the result that the ropes with which he had been tied up all of a sudden could no longer hold him. Somehow, the ropes melted off as though they were flax on fire. Samson was indeed in their presence, but by no means under their control. In this confrontation, Samson spied the jawbone of an ass on the ground and immediately grabbed it. Now he had a weapon. That's in verse 16. With this odd weapon, who would think the jawbone of an ass could even be a weapon? Samson went on a rampage and killed a thousand men. The numbers in this entire story are incredible. Three hundred foxes, three thousand men from Judah, now one thousand dead Philistines at Lehi. With Samson, nothing is temperate, ordinary, reasonable. Everything defies logic and even imagination. The strangeness of this episode is impossibly magnified when Samson composes a little poetic taunt to mark his recent conquest. With the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of an ass, I have slain a thousand men. That's in verse 16. After his poetic composition, Samson threw away the jawbone. This event was so memorable that the site was later given the name of Ramathlehi, or Jawbone Hill. That's in verse 17. Then, out of the blue, Samson talks to God. This was no spiritual urge. The man had simply gotten thirsty. That's in verse 18. His speaking to God was less a prayer than a summons. He called on God, a phrase that indicates Samson was wanting something. He brags that he was God's servant. Moreover, God had brought about a great deliverance through the exploits of his acting like God's servant. This is the first time Samson has acknowledged that he was even cognizant of God. Even now, however, Samson remained selfish. What Samson wanted to know is whether he was about to die of thirst and fall into the hand of these uncircumcised Philistines. Samson could not imagine a worse fate. This servant of God, so-called, did not ask God how he could be of further service. Instead, he wanted to know whether God would do something about his latest physical need or desire. Notwithstanding Samson's worry that he would die an ignominious death, having to deal with thirst and these damned Philistines, God immediately responded. God split open a hollow space at Lachai. 
thus producing plenty of water. That's in verse 19. Samson had a good drink, slaking his thirst and therefore reviving himself. With this divinely produced water, Samson was ready once more to continue. This miraculous event also eventuated in naming. The site where Samson drank water in Lechai was afterwards called Enhakor, or the spring of him who called. At the conclusion of this episode, we learn that Samson had judged Israel for 20 years. That's in verse 20. That statement requires a little commentary. When modern speakers of the English language hear a word like judged, it is impossible not to conjure images of judicial proceedings, courtrooms, juries, lawyers, prosecutors, defendants, lawsuits, plaintiffs, judges outfitted in robes, appellate rulings, and so forth. This activity strangely has nothing to do with the book of Judges. Indeed, the only judge who comes close to any judicial activity at all is Deborah, and that's in chapter 4 of Judges, verse 5. Most of the so-called judges in the book of Judges do nothing that can remotely be connected to judicial activities. Instead, the judges in this book are quasi-military operatives leading Israelite forces of varying sizes into battles designed to neutralize the oppression of enemies. Even Deborah does that. But there is something else that is interesting about these judges. They are not elected for their roles in any ordinary manner. They are called by God and endowed with divine powers. Once they accomplish their military goals, virtually nothing else is said about them, other than the fact that they judged for a particular amount of time. In addition, these judges are not necessarily moral exemplars. In fact, each judge is incrementally worse than his or her predecessor, as you might guess, because Samson is the last judge in the book, he wins the prize for being the worst of the lot. Nothing that we have seen in these two chapters featuring Samson disabuses us of that notion. God may be using Samson, but when it comes to moral character, religious outlook, or spiritual sensitivity, at best, this roguish man is an acquired taste. Notwithstanding, though, he did judge Israel during a period of Philistine oppression for 20 years. Once more, we scratch our heads to interpret the Samson story as scripture. Why is God willing to work with or through such an unflattering human specimen? Even if we agree that Samson had a legitimate beef when the woman he was intent on marrying was given to another man, Samson's reaction was not in the least appropriate or proportional, for any slight against him eventuated in a maximal act of vengeance. Samson, as a character, not to mention an Israelite, 
is devoid of any redeeming social graces or even a minimal religious posture. That judgment means we need to turn our attention to God. As in every other case in the book of Judges, Israel is being oppressed by others not because they are surrounded by bullies. Rather, their oppression is a function of their disobeying their God. God had sold Israel into the hand of all these enemies. At the same time, after Israel had suffered for a period of time, God would then reverse the situation. That is where the judges are called on to rescue Israel. Samson, as a judge, is trying to release Israel from Philistine bondage. So far, he's not doing a bad job of this, even though he appears to be working mostly on his own behalf, rather than Israel's behalf. In this biblical book, at least, God does not mind judging the Philistines through the actions of a morally and religiously dubious character. God can be inscrutable at times. This story may say something about Israel as well. Israel in these narratives has devolved so much that someone as problematic as Samson emerges as a savior of sorts. Though we lament God's willingness to use Samson for divine purposes, we perhaps need to ask whether or not people like Samson were the best Israel had to offer. The only truly compelling person in the four chapters dealing with Samson is his unnamed mother. That's in chapter 13. Perhaps the Samson story in part is designed to tell us how bad Israel in general had become. We cannot know this for certain, of course. Still, if neither Samson nor Israel looks good in the book of Judges, perhaps we should give thanks that God pays any attention to God's people at all at this point. But God does remember God's people, and God does what needs to be done using the only means that are available to the deity. God is not so inscrutable that we ask whether God had forgotten Israel. God has remembered Israel. God is using Samson to rescue Israel from Philistine clutches. That is at least as gracious as it is inscrutable. Next week we will finish the Samson saga and determine whether this last episode will yield better insights to this section of scripture. Let me encourage you one more to ask me any questions you have at fspino106 at gmail.com and go onto my website faspina.com and record your email there so that I have a way of getting in touch with you. Thank you. I want to thank you so very much for listening to The Bible You Thought You Knew. I have a question for you. Do you have a question or topic that you'd like me to cover on the podcast? If so, all you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do two simple things. One, leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. Two, in that review, ask anything you want related to the Bible. That's all you have to do. Then, 
Listen in to hear your question answered on a future episode. Join us next time on The Bible You Thought You Knew when we discuss Jesus' personal Bible. God bless.